So when you put that at the core of what you do, you can have a conversation about density because it isn't about density. It's about fiscal sustainability. And it's a win-win because if we're fiscally sustainable, then the taxpayers who hate paying taxes aren't subsidizing new development because the developers build it once and the citizens pay for it in perpetuity. So we've got an obligation, in my opinion, to get it right. Helping community leaders grow financially resilient, resource-conscious, and people-friendly cities is the Go Cultivate podcast, brought to you by Verdunity. Welcome back to another edition of Go Cultivate, the podcast for community builders. I hope you're having a sunny or rainy, if that's your preference, day, <laughs> wherever you are. I'm Jordan Clark, and I'm sitting across from my co-host for the moment, Kevin Shepard. Good to be here again. It's good to also be here again. Yeah. So today <laughs> we have one of our few recurring guests joining us once again for the show. Today you spoke with Linda Humble, who is the city manager of Bastrop, Texas. So, yeah, she was one of... Well, the Bastrop ladies, the three of them, Linda and the mayor and Sarah, who's no longer at the city, but they they were one of our first episodes over a year ago. And uh, I think the title of that episode was No is an Acceptable Answer, I think. Sure. And so we've been working with them for the last year uh, on this idea of fiscal sustainability and fiscal analysis. And so I wanted to get her back on. We talked about a couple things. The, the first thing that we talked about is Bastrop's journey from completing a comprehensive plan where they they said they aspire to be fiscally sustainable to where they are today, which is actually quantifying what that means and using it, really using it as the common language for all of their daily decisions. That was really cool to hear Linda, in her words, describe how they're using this to to ground and, and drive a lot of the daily decisions and investments that they're making. Uh, so that was you know a good portion of the conversation. Then we also talked about the recent Texas legislative session. <laughs> the 86th session is what she calls it. It was a big um, one. Yeah, it was a very, very big one for Texas communities um, and not in a good way at all. And she talks about why and talks a little bit about how Bastrop is handling uh, some of those impacts. And then we get into the importance of education and if we really want to transform our communities and really take fiscal sustainability and resilience seriously like you know i know we we certainly believe and and she does that educating our citizens is a really critical piece of that Uh, and she talks about ways that she's been doing that both in in her previous position with the city of rowlett texas and now they're in bastrop and then at the very end i asked her i challenged her what would you say to other city managers you know to kind of jump on this train and, and feel comfortable pushing change and and my takeaway there was she really needed to step back and challenge what she was taught and what she believed and, and what she had been doing for the you know, last 25, 27 years of her career. And then once she did that and really kind of looked at why she was doing what she was doing and opened up to maybe a different way of thinking, you know, that completely changed everything that she was doing and that their city is doing. And we've talked a lot about the, the potential solutions. There's a lot of strategies out there that cities can try and can implement to help you know do things differently but but if you don't really embrace the fact that business as usual needs to change and and really understand and and embrace the why we need to change 
you can't quite get those new ideas all the way across the finish line. So, so you used the name of a few Texas cities there and mentioned the Texas legislative session. Mm-hmm. Would you say this is a Texas-specific episode, or is there oh, application no. yeah. for... I think there's application for cities all over this country. You know, I, I think cities outside of Texas need some of these approaches even more so. I do also think that some of the cities outside of Texas are already trying some of these things, so we take those stories from outside of Texas and try to bring them here. But, you know, Linda's message as a city manager and what she's doing and how she's used fiscal sustainability to communicate with her council and her staff and her community is a, you know, something that applies to any city leader. Cool. Well, uh, without any further ado, let's have the music fade in. Here's <laughs> Kevin Shepard with Linda Humble. So Linda Humble, good to have you back on our Go Cultivate podcast. Well, thanks, Kevin. I appreciate being here. <laughs> so it's been almost a year, I think, since we first talked. Uh, you were one of our very first episodes. Um, and back then we were talking about the journey that, that you were going to take Bastrop on. And you had just completed your comprehensive plan. And in that comprehensive plan was uh, one of the things that was mentioned was fiscal sustainability. And when you first reached out to me, it was... You know, how can Verdunity help us kind of, you know, put numbers to fiscally sustainable development and implement that or translate that into the code update that you were doing? Let's just start by take us through that that journey that that you've taken your city on in the in the last year from a, a comp plan that says you want to be fiscally sustainable to now about to adopt a new code that that is going to help you get there. Well, I think the the place that I would start is that anytime you take a journey, you need two points. Where are you and where are you going? And I think the most important thing that Verunity helped us with was understanding where are we. Uh, we, like a lot of cities, have a code that allows for suburban sprawl. And your firm was able to quantify for us that that is a unsustainable development pattern. And y'all put together a model and was able to show that if we continue uh, building under our current plan in about 30 years, based on our future land use, we will be um, more than $7 million a year in the hole. And you multiply that over 30 years, and the math's super simple. It's more than $210 million uh, in the hole, and that's just looking at maintaining streets and drainage. And that's a pretty scary place to be. And so it's one thing to talk about the need to be sustainable. It's another to quantify it. And so you gave us the um, first point on the map, and that is where are we? And our council could very easily go, well, that's not okay. And so we quantified the problem we thought we had. Um, The second uh, piece that you helped us with was in the very same model that showed we were going to be more than $7 million a year upside down. Um, There was a part of our community that was actually breaking even or making money. And it was our historic downtown. And so that became the second point of our GPS coordinates, and that is where are we and where do we need to go? 
And the great thing for our community is we didn't have to leave town to find where we needed to go. We just needed to go back in history. And so we hired um, Simple City Design, and they came in and conducted a DNA analysis of downtown and coded what um, made downtown work, all of the side yard setbacks, how uh, the private realm integrated with the public realm. And we are literally two council meetings away from adopting the Bastrop Building block codes that um, go back to the way we used to develop pre-World War II before we even knew what suburban sprawl was. And so we will be um, adopting the um, building codes that I think will revolutionize how we develop. There's a lot of flexibility, uh, but it protects the very things that we as a community love. Um, we are also going to be amending our transportation plan, and we're going back to a gridded network um, so that we can have uh, blocks about 330 by 330, which helps with the fiscal sustainability aspects of uh, aging gracefully. So we think the three things that, that we've done uh, recently for our success, which is the fiscal impact model, amending our thoroughfare plan, requiring a gridded street network, and updating our codes uh, to more of a form-based approach um, are going to be the keys to our success. Yeah, it's been fun to kind of watch you work through that process. So one of the questions I get talking with city managers, you know, and, and especially with planning directors is they, they know or they, they, they feel like they understand, you know, we need to shift our development pattern to we need to get a little more density or we need to re, uh, revitalize or, or work our development back into our core but they they kind of hesitate there a little bit of you know my my council won't support it or the you know the community anytime we have a you know what let's call it a good project or, or a project that maybe has some additional intensity or density or you know apartments mixed use type of of development you know the the residents will show up and fight it saying oh this is going to bring traffic you know what have you where did the fiscal analysis in that conversation where did that help you with your council and maybe also with some of those residents in your in your community? I know you did a good job early on of, of getting the, the community ready for the conversation, but where did the fiscal analysis help maybe with a, an individual council member or the council as a whole, you know, your staff or, or the, the citizens? Was there any kind of a sticking point that you felt it, it helped you get through? I think that the, there's a couple of things. One, um, the conversation is easier to have when you understand how broke you're going to be. And as I just mentioned, the fiscal uh, impact analysis that you performed for the city of Bastrop, you quantified for us. If we do nothing, we're going to be more than $7 million a year uh, in the hole. And so that's hard to um, ignore when it's been quantified. And so many cities know they got a problem, but they don't know how bad it is, so it's easy to ignore it. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you that of some of the other cities that you've worked with. Of why, why don't cities know this already? Um, I, <laughs> <laughs> um, if I had the answer to that, I probably wouldn't need to be city manager, but. Um, I think that every community is different, and I think that the situation for every community is different. If you are in a new community and you have a lot of land to develop, uh, you'll get to it tomorrow. 
when you are a community like Bastrop, we're 187 years old. We're one of the oldest cities in the state. We'll be celebrating our 200th year in 2032. And so we're, we're now at the end of the life of a lot of our infrastructure and it's, um, failing. Depending on when you arrive in a city and how much street you've got left depends on the city manager whether or not you've got to worry about it today or tomorrow. Well, in Bastrop, we're out of street, so I have to worry about it today. So I think that would be the safest answer I could get. It depends on where (laughs) your growth is and, and what your challenges are. But council came to understand very quickly that what we were doing wasn't working. And the great thing in the comp plan that had been adopted in 2016 before I got to Bastrop in March of 2017 talked about smart growth. And I'd be willing to bet that a lot of the comp plans that are approved these days have managed growth as a, as a goal uh, in, the, in the plan. And so when I read it um, before I got here, I was very impressed at how a community the size of Bastrop um, was very innovative and very very forward thinking in the terminology that they use, and so a lot of people will tell you that how we've translated that probably wasn't the way they meant, but there there is power in understanding how broke you are, and so the question you ask is is how did did my council overcome density when they um, have in the past been unwilling to support that. And I think that goes back to our downtown. And a lot of people uh, associate density with your traditional garden apartments that in 20 years don't age well, and they become a code enforcement nightmare. And so when when you mention density, that's the first thing that pops into people's mind, and, and they don't want that. Um, what what you have to show them is density um, comes in a lot of forms, and that's not the only format it has. And the great thing about us having a, a downtown that was sustainable is our main street is very historic, but it's very dense. Uh, in fact, um, one of the densest corners in our community is the corner of Chestnut and Main. And when you look at it, you think, well, if that's what density looks like, it, it doesn't look too bad. Um, we could do more of that. Well, it's a coding issue on how your codes are written. How does your private realm interact with your public realm? Um, how, how do you make sure that you've got shade trees and how do you protect the p- pedestrian from the street? And so it, it is a combination of a lot of things. And so what we took was a very holistic approach with the fiscal impact analysis. We knew we had a problem. Uh, we appreciated that our traditional downtown was the solution. And then when you essentially uh, do a DNA of downtown, the answers are there. And so it was easy for council to be able to lead this initiative because they were able to say to the community, we're just going to do more of what we all enjoy and what we like. And part of the reason we all move to Bastrop for the charm that it brings to the community. So um, we're we're a unique situation Um I've been city managers in some other communities where it would have been a much different discussion. But since we already had the answer in our backyard, uh, it was one that the community could could wrap their mind around. And, and they're very excited about it. We, we're rezoning 
4,700 pieces of property, and we've only heard from about 70, and we've resolved about 60 uh, of those concerns, and we've got 10 that, that we're working through. So I think that's a huge success that we've been able to do that with that level of community support. Wow. That, that's the first time I've heard that. That's, that's awesome. So let me transition then to, to the legislative session that we just got through. You know, when, when we were first starting the, the fiscal analysis and, and working on, you know, projecting what was going to, you know, how Bastrop was going to look, there was a conversation about how much land you had in your, your ETJ that you could potentially annex and use some of that growth in a, as, as a way to close your gap, but also, you know, expand and diversify your residential and commercial options. In the middle of that process, the property tax cap bill gained momentum and ultimately got passed the annexation bills uh, limiting or changing how cities can can annex property got passed the building materials bill got passed how did you handle that process with with your council in terms of you know shifting from we have all this land that we can grow into to you know now we we have to look at how we can be you know fiscally sustainable with with the city limits and the the resources that you know that you currently have Um, So, Kevin, I've been doing this almost 30 years, and I will tell you that the 86th legislative session has has upset me more than probably anything in a long time. I have grieved the unintended consequences of the 86th legislative session. Um, When we talked a year ago, uh, we started the Building Bastrop Initiative, and we were planning for the next 100 years. Um, we, as I said, are a community of 187, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, we're a 187-year-old community. And so we're coming up on our, our 200th anniversary in 12 years. So we are, are looking to the future. Bastrop has a very unique extraterritorial jurisdiction. We have 145.7 square miles of extraterritorial jurisdiction. So we were planning on how we would annex um, appropriately over the next 50 to 100 years and how we would grow and, and ensure that the Bastrop of the future uh, protected the historical elements that make Bastrop great. And um, I'm sure I'm not the only city manager that watched <laughs> in just utter disbelief. And so we literally woke up one night and House Bill 3, 347 uh, became effective immediately and did away with unilateral annexation overnight. And then Senate Bill 2 passes and puts a 3.5% cap. So I, I use the analogy to uh, my counsel is I feel like my hands are now handcuffed and my feet are now handcuffed, and I'm told to go out and be hugely successful. You know, and I say that very tongue in cheek. And then you add House Bill 3167, the shot clock. And then you look at um, House Bill 857 that was effective immediately that said residential building fees can't be based on the value of a dwelling. And and I think immediately, seriously, those of us that that are um, find ourselves in that boat uh, can't immediately change something. You know, uh, I happen to have a city that requires, you know, two ordinances to be read. That's that's a process. And government's intended to move slow so that the people can keep up with it. Um, House Bill or Senate Bill 1152 
uh, did away with um, cable and phone companies having to pay for franchise fees for both. So immediately we lost $50,000 overnight. So I tell you all of that to tell you that I don't have an answer to your question because I, I haven't gotten through understanding the unintended consequences of this, and they are profound. How we develop in our ETJ, um, the fact that we won't be annexing in the future, and, and the only reason you would annex is because you've got residents or somebody that wants to be in your community because chances are it's broke and they need you to fix it. Well, if I'm not fiscally sustainable now, why would I take on more mm -hmm. that isn't fiscally sustainable? So um, in my budget letter to council, I listed the six uh, bills that I think are uh, eroding the local control. And I actually called out who voted for what, and I explained to the citizens and council uh, the impact of the bill. And with time, we'll be able to quantify that even more. So our answer to that was we adopted a modified budget of 2019, and we have made some um, some a couple of, of additions, but I didn't want council to make any strategic decisions without all of the facts. So um, we are already starting next year's budget. We are putting together the process to understand what this looks like, and we will be putting together a plan to educate our community next summer as we move into the budget on uh, the value of government and the challenges that we now face. Because if we can't raise taxes, we're going to have to either raise fees or cut services. So um, it doesn't leave us a lot of options. And I appreciate that, that people think not paying taxes are um, great, but I've worked in cities for 30 years and the primary source of revenue for all cities is taxes. And unfortunately, I think government has failed to articulate the value of the services we provide. And so we're going to um, start uh, talking about that in a way that people get. Um, if you look at the property taxes that the citizens of Bastrop pay and you divide that by 365 days, they pay roughly $2.67 a day in taxes. Um, my staff will tell you I have a slight addiction to Starbucks, and I drink <laughs> a venti, skinny, cinnamon dulce latte every day, and it's $5.35. And I don't bat an eye at buying that cup of coffee because it has value to me. And price only matters in the absence of value. And so I say to people, you can't go to Walmart and buy much for $2.67 and walk out thinking you got something. But yet when I analyze the price per day of government, whether it's in the Dallas-Fort Worth area or it's in Central Texas, I haven't found anybody that's over $3. And so for $3 a day, our citizens get an awful lot in return for their value, but we've failed dismally to explain that value to them. So we're going to have to change that. And that's the biggest um, obstacle that I face as city manager in, in my community is educating them on the value because once they understand that, then I can explain to them the impact of the 86th legislative session, and it will be significant for many years to come. Yep. You, you started to transition there into the, the education, but just to kind of back up to the legislative session, I've actually had more than a few, probably you know at least five or six people ask me with a with a straight face if if I thought that the the folks in Austin passed these bills because they wanted to force cities to make more fiscally sustainable decisions like were they or are they fully aware of you know what we talk about with with strong towns and 
you know, they're, they're intentionally passing these bills to force cities to make these decisions quicker to ultimately be more fiscally sustainable and, and transparent. And, you know, I, I just say, you know, as much as I would love to believe that that's what's, you know, driving these decisions, I don't, uh, you know, I've had enough conversations with people that work for, for various uh, congressmen and women and I know that's that's not the case, but you know maybe if there's if there's something to take out of this that that is a I guess a, a good thing it it is that I do th- I, I do think this is going to force you know not there there aren't many cities out there that are thinking the way that you guys there in Bastrop are of, of really understanding what the challenges are and and proactively making these decisions. I do think there's some out there that are kind of addicted to the illusion of wealth and the any growth is good growth kind of a, approach. So I do think this. If there's something to take away from that, it is. I, I think that it is going to force more communities, you know, throughout the state to to start to think about this a little more and and to ultimately do what you were just saying of do do a better job of educating their their citizens on what these services really cost. And you know, we can only kick the can so long, but before either you know either we charge more or these services start to get cut. You know, and that what that looks like in a more mature community is we have a capital improvement program and we have, you know, whatever, five million, ten million dollars worth of needs. And we only have five hundred thousand to throw at it. And so we're going to pick which neighborhoods or which projects are going to get funded and the rest of them are going to get pushed, you know, deferred off to later. And then the next time we do it, more of them get deferred and more of them get deferred. And, and ultimately you, you end up with declining neighborhoods and people and businesses moving out of your community because you couldn't take care of everything. So I, I do think how do we address what's happening in Austin? You you need to get the folks that are there more educated about it. You need to get, um, you know, and, and maybe we need to get new people into office and getting new people into office that understand a little more of what's on your plates at lo- in local government is citizen education. We we have to get citizens more more informed about what's going on, and we can only ignore the costs and keep the costs down for so long before they come back. And for me, that hits home with, with my kiddos. I mean, I, I know what's coming for my kids and what they're going to have to pay to to live either where we live now or, or where they want to. I just, it's it's something that we have to start to talk about. So you're one of the more you know vocal city managers, I think, proactive city managers in terms of talking to your community and your residents about this back to you know, the, the education program that you went through and when you were in Rowlett, and I think you you had told me you're, you're talking about using a similar model there in Bastrop now, but can you maybe talk a little bit about what you did in Rowlett and how that impacted how the, the residents there thought about taxes and, and what they were getting for their money? Yes, I'll, I'll be glad to get there, but I have to go back and comment on a, a couple of the statements that you made. Um, first of all, I, I concur. I don't believe Austin is doing this to make us more fiscally sustainable. <laughs> because when you analyze your tax bill, more than 52% of your tax bill goes to fund uh, uh, the school district, or at least 50%. In my case, it's 52%. Well, when you read the state constitution, funding uh, public schools is the state's job. And because they have reduced the amount of funding that they're giving local school districts, the percentage of your taxes has gone up. So I would argue that if the state legislature owned fiscal sustainability, um, taxes everywhere would be um, less of a burden. Um, In the city, 
our citizens only pay 21% of their taxes to the city of Bastrop. 23% go to the county and the rest go to the school district. So if we want to fix the tax problem in this state, let's fix public school funding. That's my first comment. The second is every city is at a different place. So the unintended consequences of the 86th legislative session will be decades in the making, Kevin. Those of us that are in older communities that have deferred maintenance today, I was having a problem maintaining what I had when I had all of my tools in my toolbox. And now I've got two less than I had uh, in May. I I cannot annex and, and we can't raise taxes without an election to do that. So I do believe that um, things will have to get way worse before they get better. And part of the education that you're talking about is educating people on what their tax dollars go for. Uh, The challenge I think we have is we don't teach government in classes anymore. We don't teach civics. So I think there is a, a, um, a lack of information and a lack of understanding that our public has with government. And I think that when they interact with us and they get poor service, or they don't get automated service and they get that from the electric company or the gas company or the cable company, but we make them take off work to come fill out a utility permit to get water and wastewater, we're just continuing to shoot ourselves in the foot. So I think the first thing is to to educate people on our impact on their quality of life. And if we do our job well, we provide a quality of life that they've come to enjoy and expect and, frankly, take for granted. Because as long as the streets are paved and they can get in and out of town and when they get up every morning and as long as they turn their water on and there's water coming out of the faucet or they flush their toilet and the sewer leaves their house, then we've done our job, but chances are we don't get credit for that. So the the process that we did when I was in Rowlett was called Rowlett, My Community, My Money, My Choice. And we put together a process where we educated the community on nine different departments, uh, what was their purpose, what what do they do to impact your quality of life, and how much does that cost you uh, annually, and how much does that cost you per day? And do you want more of it, less of it, or the same? And at the end of that process, um, and we did this when I was city manager, so this was probably back in 2011. Um, We're coming out of the 2009-2010 recession, so it's probably 2011. What we did was is 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 we educated um, people on the services we provide and how much they cost. And at the end of the day, we had um, about 500 people participate in person and another 500 or so uh, participate uh, through a survey. And overwhelming, 77% were willing to raise their taxes to get better services. So that tells me that um, there's an opportunity to have an election and raise taxes, but people are going to have to understand uh, what services they get. And more importantly, we're going to have to be able to prove that we've done a good job with the money that we've gotten from them in order to ask for more money. And we're going to have to have programs uh, such as a capital improvement plan um, that we can say, this is what you're going to get with your money. And if we don't do that, what I think is going to happen is 
some of the things that make us unique, like our parks, our, our libraries, some of those services, they'll just start cutting and pretty soon we'll wake up and they weren't what they used to be. People won't understand why they're not, and and they'll just become that much more aggravated at government. So I, I see this very scary um, evolution if we don't proactively change our path and do something different, because what we're doing is not working. So it's going to take a lot of time and energy, but um, there there is a need to educate our elected officials, but I firmly believe if you educate the people that vote for them, um, that's way more powerful because when uh, they can't get elected and they in the constituency understands the government that they want and are willing to elect those that fit the values that they share, um, I think things change. But unfortunately, I, I'm concerned that they're going to get worse before they get better. Yeah, I have that in a lot of the talks that I do of really the aha moment that I had back in my former job back in 2008, 2009, 2010, working nationally and seeing, you know, cities of all different shapes and sizes around this country and where they were. And then I would come back to North Texas and and just wonder, you know, what are we what are we doing different here that's going to keep us from ending up in the same path? And I've talked before about that's where I met Chuck Marone from Strong Towns and I thought back, you know, in 2011 when we started, I said, oh, oh, I'll take these examples from other parts of the country that are older, more mature communities that, you know, went through the growth phase and had their time where they were the best place to live, work and play and grew a bunch, built a bunch, you know, had a lot of businesses and people moving to them. And then when they approach build out and they, they aren't able to maintain everything and those people and those resources and those businesses leave and they go somewhere else and you just start to see this this cycle of decline and it's happening over and over and over across the country. And now we're starting to see that happen in some of our older cities in Texas as well. You know, when you talk about it, it's this interesting kind of balancing act that we have to walk between showing examples from other places and showing examples of, you know, where we're headed, but also continuing to kind of shine a light and say that there's an opportunity that for, you know, where we can learn from those mistakes from other places and, and make changes I think I agree completely with you that every city is a little different and, you know, where you're at and what resources you have will kind of drive how you come out of this thing. But, you know, the sooner you have a, a transparent conversation in your community about where you are and the costs that either you already have and you're not able to pay or the costs that are coming, I do, I do find that most people in their community want to help. That could be, heck yeah, I'm happy to pay a little more in property tax as long as I know what it's going for. Or, you know, maybe I can't afford financially to to help, but I've got a talent or my business could help out or, you know, I'm willing to, I've got some time that I can put in to, to help. And that's the really exciting thing to see is in, in all these cities of, of once you can get the conversation looking forward of, of being honest about where you're at and the challenges that are either there or coming you do see the the communities kind of rise up and say, you know what, we can we can work together and get out of this. And that's if there's you know a message I could give to elected officials and city leaders that are listening, it's don't be afraid to have this transparent conversation and, and just admit where you are. You know, I see so many cities that are just afraid to put the number out there. It was so refreshing. Linda, to, to stand up in front of your council and say, you know, you're 144 million in the whole 7 million a year, you know, whatever it was. 
And your counsel, you know, they leaned into the conversation. They were like, you know, okay. And your, your counsel, every time I've been down to your counsel, that, that room's packed. You, you guys do a great, <laughs> a great job of getting your, your community to, to show up too. But you can almost see relief on, on the mayor and the council's, different council members' faces of like, okay, now we have a number. We know where we're are, we are, and it's out there. There was an article written in the, in the paper about it, and it was just, it's, your number's out there now. And so the whole conversation frees up about how do we move forward instead of this whole kind of charade, really, of, of just keeping it inside City Hall and not letting, not letting residents really know what the issue is. And, and that was what I was going to say. It frees you up to challenge the paradigms. And the, the journey has really been mine to take. Um, we are all guilty of um, judging how things ought to be by the filter we have accumulated through life. And so 27 years of my career, I spent in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. And Dallas has experienced a phenomenal boom. And in that 27 years, I've seen a lot of cities that were out in the middle of nowhere now be in the middle of of everything. And you grow up believing that you've got to have um, wide, concrete, curb and gutter streets. You know, you've got to have, you know, the appropriate number of arterial streets in a neighborhood. And and you, you've got to put all of this expensive infrastructure in. And you've got to have these four-lane uh, d- divided uh, roadways through your town to help all of this traffic. And so you you build what you believe is the way it ought to be. And so I, I come to Bastrop with that mindset. Um, that's what's not fiscally sustainable, Kevin. That's the very thing we've been talking about. So the journey as city manager was mine to take. And and so you begin to to look at a gridded street network. Well, you don't have to have six-lane divided thoroughfares running through your town with a gridded network because if the traffic backs up, you just turn right and go down a block and turn left, and you got lots of options, and you, you just don't need a thoroughfare uh, master plan that's epically huge and extraordinarily expensive with a gridded street network. Um, so I had to first um, peel back what I thought and ask, why do I believe that? And I came to understand I believe it because it was all I knew. It wasn't necessarily because it was right. It was because it was all I knew. And so I, I have now come to appreciate that you can build smaller streets. You can build asphalt streets with concrete ribbon. There's absolutely nothing wrong with bar ditches because, believe it or not, you can you can get more water absorbed with bar <laughs> ditches than you can through storm drain. And yep. so some of the suburban sprawl regulations actually create your flooding problem. That was a problem we've had to resolve. So it's been very interesting to to be at the the end of my life cycle, if you will, as city manager. I'm kind of in that last 15 years of of my 30-year career. And so I'm taking all of the wisdom I thought I knew. And at this point in time, I'm having to go, how smart am I? Because in some instances, I'm doing what I know, but what I know is not the right answer. So it's been very interesting to, to challenge my paradigms. And because the community has this number, See, I'm, I'm, I'm in a position with council to now challenge it against our purpose statement. And our purpose statement, I think, is brilliant because it really has allowed us to take this journey. And council adopted the policy sa- statement that says we're going to become a fiscally sustainable community through land use regulations that preserve 
authentic backdrop and allow for us and, and acknowledge our geographically sensitive environment. And so those are three and statements. So we've got to be fiscally sustainable. We've got to protect the very things that make us backdrop. And we've got to do that in a way that protects our geography and is environmentally sensitive. And there are no or statements. So all three of those have to come into play. So that becomes the catalyst around every conversation that we have that's land use or everything that's related to street maintenance or um, anything else. And so when you put that at the core of what you do, you can have a conversation about density because it isn't about density. It's about fiscal sustainability. And you can build a dense product and you can landscape it right. Um, you can build it with the appropriate amount of infrastructure so it's fiscally sustainable. And it's a win-win because if we're fiscally sustainable, then the taxpayers who hate paying taxes aren't subsidizing new development. And if we don't do that, that's exactly what's happened because the developers build it once and the citizens pay for it in perpetuity. So we've got an obligation, in my opinion, to get it right. Woo, man, preach, Linda. <laughs> well, a couple couple things to to add with that. I uh, I found my way into this this fiscal sustainability you know conversation. I'm an engineer by degree, and you know I when we started Verdunity, it was more I want to change the way we're designing our streets. I want to I want to help cities implement more green infrastructure. It was a, there's a bunch of technical more you know infill and small development and small lots and you know accessory dwelling units. I came into this knowing there, there's all these tools and strategies of things that we need to do, but I kept bumping up against ultimately the resistance of you know our codes or our politics or our citizens just didn't, would not let those things get over the hump. And I kept asking myself, why, 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 why? You know, and then I started to think about, okay, well, how? <laughs> how do I get them to change? And it's what you just said of, I was just listening to a podcast the other day with a, a guy by the name of, of Henry Cloud. He's a psychologist, but he talks a lot about, about a lot of leadership development. And he, he talked about getting people to think about the decisions they're making and, and getting them to own their decision to continue being stuck. And, you know, he's like, if, if, if you can get them to say, okay, here's where you are and what the consequences are, and there's a better way, there's a different way that could get you unstuck, you know, and if you want to continue to make the decision to be stuck, you're going to, you know, that's your call. That's totally your prerogative. But know that when you're avoiding that choice, when you're avoiding making a change, that you're intentionally making the choice to continue to be stuck and, and leaving these other outcomes on the table. And then, you know, once you acknowledge that you do need to change and, and you open up to this idea, like what you were just saying about you learning that that was the only way that you were taught. And, and once you're exposed to these new ideas and that there is, there is a path forward, there are tools in the toolbox to help city leaders and help cities change and get on a better path. We just have to get them to understand why business as usual is broken and why you know, why we need to change and then feel comfortable that you can still get economic development. You can still provide quality places for multiple generations of a family. And oh, by the way, they can be safer. They can be more environmentally resilient. They can be more socially inclusive and ultimately fiscally sustainable, which we say so much here that fiscal sustainability is that common language or that single metric. I mean, as you know, you go into any organization and you're trying to turn it around or improve it. You're looking for like, what's that one thing that we can measure that everything else that we do folds up underneath. And I think for cities right now, it's fiscal sustainability. If you're not doing things that can help you close that gap 
you're doing the wrong things because ultimately if you don't have money, you can't maintain parks. You can't maintain those 31 or 38 or 42 foot wide concrete streets and cul-de-sacs. You can't provide police and fire to everybody in your community. So it may take a while to get to that point, but ultimately you're going to get there. So I was raising my arms as you were saying of, of if you can t- tie every single policy and decision in your community back to are we closing our gap or are we making it worse and if you make it you know if you approve a development or you make a decision that is actually going to make your gap bigger a little bit that doesn't mean it's a bad decision you just understand why and know that you have to do some other things to account for it so i, I just i want to continue to follow what you're doing and how you're you're driving this down through the bastrop community and your organization because it's just it's fascinating to hear you kind of in your own words describe what we at Verdunity are trying to help more cities do. Well, the the comment that I would make is every challenge we have is is always bigger than our ability to solve it. And, and said another way is I've never worked in a city that had all the resources it needed to solve all the problems that it had. And so city managers become uh, adept at incremental fixes. Um, I tell people, if you if you give me five years, I, I can fix a problem by doing a fifth of it every year. I might not have $100,000, but over five years, I can come up with $20,000 a year. And so my comment to the fiscal sustainability journey is, yes, it's epic, and, and it can absolutely shut you down to the point you can't wrap your mind around it. But if you make one decision a day, that is fiscally sustainable, and that's the the essence of your decision. All of our decisions have long, uh, not all of them, but a lot of them have um, impacts for a long period of time. So my comment is start small. Just do one thing, and then tomorrow do one more. And pretty soon, over a period of time, you've, you've made some conscious choices because we all plant olive trees. We're all doing something today so that toilets flush 10 years from now. You know, when you do a capital improvement plan, you, you're building infrastructure that has a 20 or 30 year life cycle. So um, whatever you invest in today, invest in it so that it, it's still fiscally sustainable 10, 15, 20 years from now. And if you can't do it in everything, do it in at least one thing. And the second um, comment that I would make to your statement is you have to be okay saying no. And I said that in the last podcast. I'm going to say it today. Um, we are, we are, I think, um, um, sensitized to believe that everything that walks through the door, we've got to figure out how to help and, 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 and allow to develop. And there's just some development that's not a good fit. Doesn't make it a bad development, just means it doesn't go here. And the one gift that I think our council um, gives our community is they're not afraid to say no. Um, so if it doesn't fit our purpose statement, um, it just means that, that you're free to go develop somewhere else. And that's not that we're not grateful or we're trying to be picky, but um, if it doesn't work for us in, in our vision, then it needs to go somewhere that does. And so to, to city managers and elected officials, have have a vision, have a purpose statement, and understand not everything that comes to you will fit that mold. And as I tell people, if you don't have that, you don't know whether or not it's an opportunity. So you'll accept some things that you'll look back and wish you didn't do. So it's okay to say no. Sometimes that's the best gift you can give a community is mm-hmm. saying no. 
we're, we're working in a number of communities that struggle with that of they're in the growth mode and they have, you know, a lot of opportunity and, and developers and businesses and, you know, that are frustrated that the codes are too strict. And it's, it's very easy for council to want to, you know, to say, oh, well, if we say no, they're going to hop over us. And, you know, this business or this development's going to hop over us and go to the next town. And I still, you know, I encourage them what's most important. Is it most important to get something now that might give you a little a little boost, but it's going to make your situation worse 10 or 20 years from now? Or is it better to say, you know, we're going to stay the course and only allow development that that helps make us make us stronger? Last question for you, and, and we'll wrap this up because um, I know you need to, to get going. But We've got our community cultivators network that we've started to try to connect more, you know, what I call progressive or are the city leaders that want to try to put this stuff into action. We've got this podcast. I'm, I'm continuing to speak at a lot of at a lot of conferences and events on this topic. But I think it's so critical that, you know, the next the current and the next generation of city managers, um, not just in Texas, but across this country, really embrace this challenge and you know, we need to, we need more city managers, more elected officials that want to own this challenge. And, you know, like you said, start to make the, the small things happen, the incremental things to, to make it better. You know, what advice would you have or what, what's the first thing that you think city managers out there need to do to get educated on this and, and to get comfortable with taking the next step in their city? I think that there are a a number of resources in strongtown.org that you can read. Um, When I first started this journey, I I read three or four books that are published through that. And and only read them if you're willing to challenge your paradigm. Because if you're not, don't waste your time. So to the city managers that truly are trying to figure out that pathway. Um, I, I read three of them one weekend. My husband was in the room and I, I didn't know it. He, he said I was so absorbed. It was stunning, but I would make notes and I would read that. And he said, I'm sitting over there in the chair talking to myself because what, what it did was it caused me to, to challenge what I thought. And I had to think about it differently. And I talk about processing as noodling. And so there were some concepts I had to noodle. And I went back three or four days later and I'd reread that chapter and think I had never thought about it. And he, and he does a great job of explaining things in a way that's hard not to get. And that was the beginning of me challenging what I thought and, and having to understand that I was part of the problem. And in order to fix the, the problem, I had to get out of the way of myself because, I, you know, as city managers, we have a role in this, and that's to lead, and that's to guide, and, and, and to guide the organization to be be different and to, to work with our uh, elected officials and bring in resources like for unity and, and let them take the journey as policy as, as I'm taking the journey, you know, from an operation standpoint. And, and the first place I would suggest is, is begin to challenge what you know. Um, and then I, I'm happy to talk to anybody. I know that, that your um, uh, community provides opportunities to share ideas. And, and um, I've, I've met some wonderful people in faith. Uh, I know some folks in League City. So there's some other places that you just begin to, to get this um, organic uh, network, if you will, and we're forever sharing ideas, and and I, I communicate with um, uh, the city manager and assistant city manager and fate who really 
um, we could attribute our our reason for taking this journey with them. So it's it's everybody helping everybody. Yeah, a, a couple things just to wrap up on that. Number one, so the the books you're talking about, they're they're called the Thoughts on Building Strong Towns, Volume One, Two, and Three by Chuck Marone. Those are those are all books that he put together. That's like a, a compilation of blogs that he's written over over time. And that that's actually the the very first thing I did with the guys at City of Fate, uh, Michael Kovacs and Justin Weiss. I gave them a copy of the first book, and it was the same experience you just talked about. Like the the very next week, Michael was on the phone with me saying, "Holy smokes! Every everything I thought <laughs> about what I was doing just you know just changed." And it. Um, it, you know, it's driven a lot of what they're doing there. Same thing with with Scott Livingston and the guys in, in League City and uh, a number of, of other cities. So that that is that's also a place that I encourage them to start. The other thing that Linda, you may may or may not know about is Chuck's got a brand new book out right now. That's more of what I'll call an official book. But it just it actually just came out officially today. And Chuck's going to be running around the country doing a bunch of book tours and signing signing deals, including some stops in Texas. So it's good to hear you say that because that's also a place that when I met Chuck back in 2010, it helped me as an engineer and planner kind of understand some of the questions that I had. And it's become, I think, the best resource on getting this conversation started. And then, you know, when you're when you're there and you've kind of had that aha and, and want to make some changes. That's where we're trying to be with Fredunity is, you know, not so much. We, we are trying to do the education piece as well. But once you're ready to take those concepts and actually kind of do the down and dirty work of making the planning and the operational and the project changes in your community, we, we want to help. So, Linda, I'm sure we'll have you on here again and continue to tell the, the Bastrop story. But is there I know you've got some exciting things there. You've got I think you have a couple of staff positions open, too. Is there any last thing you want to do to promote Bastrop to our audience? Uh, yes. Yes. I happen to be looking for a director of planning and development, and um, I think it is a, an awesome opportunity. We've spent the last year updating our, our development codes, our international codes, uh, we've updated our transportation plan. We've retooled our entire organization to accommodate House Bill 3167. Uh, we've updated our drainage ordinance. And so whoever gets this job is is walking in to an organization that the heavy lifting's been done. Uh, there's very clear direction. I have a very bold council. Um, have strong leadership. So uh, I think it's a prime opportunity. So if anybody that is in planning has an interest in working in a great community that is trying to get it right, think of Bastrop. And thank you, Kevin, for letting me do that shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> like I we said, we're, we're trying to support each other, right? But I'd just second that. I, I haven't seen very many councils that are as aligned as, as yours is and, and definitely staff as well. You put together a great team there. So, well, Linda, appreciate you being being on here and we'll continue to tell the Bastrop story. All right, Kevin. Thank you so much. Take care. Well, that was some, some chat, Kevin. Yeah, one of my favorites. If you ever meet her, she's a firecracker. <laughs> she's fun to listen to. Um, So thanks again for listening to another lovely, somewhat dire, but perhaps somewhat hopeful episode of (laughs) Go Cultivate. We wanted to mention, or Kevin wanted to mention, an upcoming... Oh thing. yeah, yeah. So uh, we we uh, in the conversation introduced. At the, towards the end of the conversation, she referenced Michael Kovacs and Justin Weiss from Fate and Scott Livingston in League City, both communities that we've been talking and working with. 
Um, and I just wanted to mention that for those of you in Texas, I'm going to be doing a session, two sessions actually, on Thursday, October 10th in San Antonio. We've got uh, one in the morning at the TEDC, Texas Economic Development Conference. I think it's at 1030. Um, and that's a session with the guys from Fate and Scott Livingston from League City. And then in the afternoon at the TML, Texas Municipal League Conference, also in San Antonio, I'm going to be doing a session with Monty Anderson that afternoon on uh, cultivating community capital, one building and project at a time. So two different conferences, both in San Antonio, both on the same day. But that date is October 10th, October 10th. And Kevin has promised to buy drinks for anyone who finds him in San Antonio on that day. I think sure. I think I heard you just agree to that. There you, sure. there you go. Why not? Drinks are good. I like <laughs> drinks. Might be water for everybody. But <laughs> All right. Let's wrap this yep. baby up. As always, you can find us on the social media. We are at Verdunity. You can send us an email at podcast at Verdunity.com to make any recommendations or toss some tomatoes at us, which is a thing that people say, but I don't think people do that. But you are still welcome to do that digitally. And if you found this episode helpful, why not tell a friend? It's time for us to get out there and go cultivate something good in our neighborhood. Until next time, everybody. We need a jingle to go with that. I'll let it one in. All right.